and I'm going to read to us in a moment. Uh, we're going to cover, Lord willing, the entire uh, chapter today, but I only, only want to read for us the first seven verses, and um, this is not really a Father's Day message. Happy Father's Day. Um, I didn't, you know, the spread of sin, colon, a Father's Day message is not, not that, that wouldn't have worked for a title. So it's not exactly a Father's Day message, but happy Father's Day, fathers. Uh, we are grateful for you. We've been uh, blessed by you. And, um, but today's message is going to have application not just for dads, though certainly for dads, but for all of us as we look at the spread of sin. In the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 3, of course, we saw sin enter the picture, and, um, and then we're going to see how it spreads beyond just the first couple in uh, this chapter now. So we're going to uh, read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to chapter 4 of Genesis and we recognize the spread of sin, not just in an ancient family, not just on the page, but we recognize our own sin. And though we have not sinned perhaps in the likeness of, of Cain, yet we see sin in our own hearts that bears fruit in different ways. And we confess that before you, God. We confess that we have offended you. We have sinned against you, and we, we repent of that. And we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that even in this time, we would see how that forgiveness is even possible. That we would see not just the route that sin takes in spreading and the, the ways it shows its head, we would certainly see that, but that we would also see your sin-conquering power in your Son. So, Father, I pray that you would indeed work on in our hearts during this time, that we would not be distracted by what has gone before or what might come after, but that we would be all here. And we pray that you, by your Spirit, would minister in our hearts, in our congregation, to lift up the name of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what consequences do we think might come from Adam and Eve's fall into sin? 
It's a very famous chapter. Genesis chapter 3 is a very famous one, and it's one we know well. What might be the consequences? I think we can jump ahead immediately, and, and we often do so, and, and, and rightly so, uh, jumping all the way to the New Testament and, and uh, places like Romans 5 and, and uh, John 3.16, and where we see God dealing with the, the enormous consequences generally, but how does it spread? What does it look like in the immediate context? Or maybe uh, to make it more personal, what kind of impact might our lives and the choices that we make have on others around us as we look at the impact of Adam and Eve's taking of the fruit. And to answer those questions, we're going to uh, look beyond our first parents. We're going to look at really the second generation. And we see as we do so that sin starts with worship. The passage we just read, verses 1 through 7 there, shows a picture of worship. They are bringing offerings. Here you have Cain, who is the firstborn, and then you have Abel, his brother. Cain is a farmer, and so he brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. It makes sense. And Abel is a shepherd, and Abel brings an offering, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. He brings the best. And, and so you see that they each come to worship. We don't know when or how or, or whatever this, uh, this understanding of worship came about, but we see it in practice. We see what's happening here, that they are involved in worship, and they each have their kinds of worship, their kinds of offering that they bring. And we see that God accepts Abel and his offering, but not Cain and his. So you have two brothers bringing offerings. One is accepted and one is not accepted. And that's going to be the problem. That's going to, that's going to be the spark that's really going to start uh, the, the fire of the rest of this chapter. Why was it that Cain's offering was not accepted? Is it because it was a vegetable offering or because it was of the fruit of the ground? Was that the problem? Maybe, maybe that's an inappropriate offering. Well, we see elsewhere in the Bible that, that there are many appropriate times when an offering of the fruit of the ground can be brought. Grain offerings and cereal offerings, it's sometimes called, and things like that. So it's not the fact that it is a vegetable offering or an offering that comes from the ground that's the problem. It seems to be Cain's attitude, the attitude with which he brings uh, the offering. And I think that's reflected in the offering itself because it wasn't just that he brought of the fruit of the ground. It's that he brought just some of the fruit of the ground. And if you contrast that with what we read about Abel and his offering, what did Abel bring? Well, of the flock, of the firstborn of the flock, and their fat portions. Right? There seems to be a, a, a greater uh, involvement. There seems to be a greater commitment. He seems to be more engaged, does Abel, in the sacrifice than Cain does. Cain kind of seems like he's going through the motions. Yeah, he took some stuff. And he brought the stuff. He, he took the, the, the fruit of the field and he brought it. But it wasn't the, the, the first portion. It wasn't necessarily the best portion. It was just a portion. And so we, uh, we see that there's a difference, I think, between Cain and Abel that is reflected in the kind of offerings that they bring. Not, not, not the fact that one is of the field and one is of the flock, but 
but uh, the kind that it is. And I think uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4 helps us understand what's going on here. Hebrews 11 and verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. It was by faith that he offered it. And so Abel's faith seems to have been a genuine faith that showed itself in the kind of offering that he brought. And so thus, we read in the passage there in in, uh, uh, verse 4 and verse 5 that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering and did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So when that happens, when God has regard for Abel and for Abel's offering and not for Cain and for Cain's offering, what does Cain do? Does he resolve to do better? Does he examine his heart to see what went wrong or how he's come short or anything like that? No, if we look at our passage, we see exactly what he does. Verse 5, so Cain became very angry and his face fell. He brought an offering. His brother's offering was accepted instead of his. And he becomes angry. He doesn't doesn't resolve to understand what the problem is and fix it. He He doesn't examine himself. He becomes embittered. He becomes jealous. He becomes envious. And so his face falls. It's a very vivid picture. And I think it reveals a piece of Cain's heart. But at that time, and, and when his face falls, the Lord came to Cain. And look at, look at what it says there in verse 6. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? So it catches God's attention that, that Cain has this response, that Cain is angry about this. And so the Lord comes to him and, and, and asks him, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So God comes to warn him. Cain, you're you're on the edge. You're, You're at a fork in the road. Why are you angry? And again, when God asks questions, he's not seeking information. As if he's curious as if he doesn't know. He wants Cain to examine his own heart and say, well, yeah, why why am I angry? But of course, uh, we're going to see the direction Cain's life is going to take in the face of that. But I think for us, there's a a point of application there. When we read God's Word, when we we sit in a a sermon, the the question ought to be, what, what does this reveal about me? Why am I angry? Why am I bitter? Why am I frustrated? Why do I feel hopeless? We have a tendency maybe to to think that it's because something's wrong out there. That's why I'm angry, because you did this thing or you said that thing, or I feel hopeless because my situation's terrible, right? You see, it's out there, and that was kind of Cain's problem. Well, I wasn't accepted, and so he's angry. When God comes and asks the question, why are you angry? He should have paused and thought, I wonder why I'm angry. What is it about this that's going on that's making my face fall? 
But nevertheless, God comes and he asks the question and he, he warns him. He says, if, if you do well, you're going to be accepted. And if you don't, there's, there's sin crouching like a, like a pet at the door, like, a, like, a, like something waiting, just waiting for you to choose sin so that it can pounce on you. And so God warns him, and of course we know how the story is going to go, but there's another point of application while we're uh, at this point in the, in the passage. We need to be wary of sin. One sin leads to another sin. It's not as if we can uh, just do this sin and then we'll be done and we'll move on. He says, if you don't do well, sin is crouching and waiting. Just waiting to control you, waiting to master you. And when you, when you, when you uh, pursue that sin, it's going to lead to another one. Of course, we know with uh, Cain, and we're going to read in this story, that that is exactly the case. One sin leads to another. We, we must rule over sin, or it will rule over us. We need to recognize it for what it is, recognize its desire to consume us, to control us, to master us. It's not something to toy with. I want us to notice, before we move on, this whole episode starts with worship. The brothers are going to worship. They're bringing their offerings. And what happens in their worship is is what leads to this jealousy and this bitterness and this anger and this murder. You wouldn't think that the story would start at the point of worship, but that's really what it does. But Abel comes in faith with his heart, uh, right to worship God, desirous to do so, and Cain just seems to be going through the motions. And you see his face fall, that, uh, that God doesn't regard him and his offering. It seems like, reading about Cain here, that he really wants what he can get from God. He desires not the giver, but the gift. And how often do we do that? How often is that what we want? We want the good things from God, the good feelings from God. We want the, the gift and if, if we have to deal with the giver to get there, well, I guess we will. You see, we've got things exactly around, and it seems like Cain wants the regard of God, as the ESV puts it. He wants God to have uh, grace upon, favor upon him, a smile upon him. That's what he wants. He wants the regard of God, but without himself having a proper regard for God. He doesn't come in faith. He doesn't come prepared to worship in his heart. He just has some things in his hand. I would say what he's really worshiping is God's regard more than than he is worshiping God. And so when he's not accepted, his gift is not accepted, and he's not, he gets angry that he doesn't receive God's regard. He thinks he deserves God's smile. He's done the stuff. He went through the motions. He he brought the offering just like his brother did, and, and so I deserve the favor of God also. So the problem starts with worship. Specifically, it starts with what Cain is worshiping. And there's a point of application for us here too, that our worship must also be with appropriate attitudes and faith, directed to God in truth and not toward the gifts that God gives. It's easy for us to fall into that, to be desirous to know God's smile, to know that feeling or something, more so than we desire to know God. 
And our worship will be shaped by the degree to which we have a proper view of God and a proper appreciation for who He really is and what He's really like. So it starts off not well, and it starts off uh, in the time of worship. And we see, second of all, in the second paragraph here, that sin affects all of life. All of life. So first, this sin, this problem is in Cain's heart, but then look at verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. The, the idea is there, he, he lured him. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's go over here in the place where I have control into the field. He speaks to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So it spread from just bitterness of heart into the first murder. And it didn't take long, but Cain kills his brother. Can you imagine? This is the second generation in humanity, and we've already moved to the point of murder. And that's the, what you see, the spread of sin here. And then the Lord enters the picture. And again, just like we saw in chapter 3 where the Lord comes on the scene and interrogates the guilty party, the Lord said to Cain, verse 9, where is Abel your brother? Again, he's not asking for information. He's asking, seeking confession. He wants Cain to confess. And remember, the same question or a similar question had been put to Adam and Eve, and what had they done? Remember, they had done this thing. Oh, it was... It was this other one, it was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent, really, he did it, right? Well, they weren't exactly lying. They weren't telling the whole truth, and they were misdirecting. But here, what do we have Cain doing? I don't know where my brother is. He just lies to God's face. So we see that sin has corrupted humanity a step further. This isn't just taking of a fruit and eating it. This isn't just trying to blame someone else. This is murder, which then leads to lying to God. I don't know. Then he asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? That's meant as a rhetorical question. And in one sense, the answer is, no, you're not your brother's keeper. Like a beekeeper or something, right? Where you, where you have the boundaries set of what your brother can do, where you have control of your brother, where you control where he goes, where you, where you uh, have, have that kind of lordship over your brother. Of course, we are not our brother's keepers. You might keep animals. You might keep sheep. You might keep bees. You might keep other things, but the relationship we have with one another is very different. So in that sense, no, you're not your brother's keeper. But why, why is Cain saying that? Why does he raise that question? He, he wants to make God's question and God's interrogation seem ridiculous. What are you saying, I'm supposed to control everywhere he goes? And he's trying to make God seem ridiculous. He's making God seem like he's somehow a guilty party or something like that. Am I my brother's keeper? Are you saying I'm supposed to follow him everywhere he goes? Right, of course, every parent and every school teacher knows this is a dodge. Right? It's because you don't want to answer. You're trying to, trying to make it extreme. And that's exactly what Cain does. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, well, no, he's not his brother's keeper. He doesn't have to control everywhere he goes, everything he eats, everything he does. No, you don't control him, but we should protect our brother. 
We should care for and love our brother. And Cain, what have you done? You've done exactly the opposite of keeping. You've killed him. And so, whereas Cain should have loved his brother, whereas he should have watched out for him and, and done all of those things, yet instead he kills him. Verse 10, in response to what Cain says, the Lord said, what have you done? Sounds like the question to his mom, Eve, what is this thing that you've done? Do you realize the gravity of what this means? What have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God is saying, you've spilled his blood onto the ground. By the way, the very ground that Cain worked, you've spilled his blood. And it's as if it's crying out to me, saying, when will I be avenged? How long, O Lord? Blood cries out from the ground. And now God continues, you are cursed from the ground. Now we noticed last week that there, there are a couple of different uh, cursings that have happened as a result of the sin of, of chapter 3. But no human has been cursed. Remember the two things that were cursed? First of all, it was the serpent, and then it was the ground. And here you have, you have Cain being cursed from the ground. So the cursing has gotten worse. It has intensified because the sin has intensified. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, farmer, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield for you its strength. This is, this is right at his doorstep. This isn't just some random thing. You know, Cain gets his, uh, his living. He, he eats because he's a farmer. Well, now uh, farming is not going to work because the ground will not feed you. Instead, you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So here the farmer, and farmers are closely tied to their land, and they've got to be there for chores, and they've got to, uh, in season and out of season, they've got to take care of their land, and he's going to be, uh, now the land won't produce for him, and he's going to be booted off. He's going to be a wanderer. And so here the first person cursed in the Bible is Cain himself, and he's going to be kicked out. He's going to be a wanderer on the earth. So this story is pretty low so far, right? This isn't, this isn't good news. Well, we're not there yet, but it's going to get worse even than this. And so uh, Cain argues with God a little bit. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain complains, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Right, so Cain complains. Now, this is his opportunity where he could be confessing. He could be repenting. Right? He could be lamenting before God. But instead, he seems to be concerned that the consequences are too great. I'm going to be a wanderer on the earth. I've been driven away from you, God. I've been driven away from my land. And now when people see me, they're going to hunt me down and kill me because I'm a murderer. I've committed fratricide. I've killed my brother. So he's concerned about himself. He's concerned about the consequences. You see, for Cain, the most important person is Cain. And, and I can relate. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. 
Isn't it amazing that God is gracious and merciful to Cain, the first murderer? Because Cain deserves to be hunted down and killed. He deserves justice. But the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. God God chooses to protect Cain. Cain who deserves judgment instead, death. God determines he will protect Cain. That any attack upon Cain will, will bring a response that's seven times stronger than normal. He's uh, assigning himself, as it were, to protect Cain, the killer. We see God's mercy at work here. Vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord put a mark on Cain. No idea what that is, by the way. It doesn't say, nor anywhere does it say. Put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And so, Cain gets a mark. God puts a mark on Cain to protect him, to warn other people, this man is under God's protection. This man, though he's vile and he's a criminal, he's under God's protection. So he puts a mark on him, something that would be recognizable, something that that people would see and know that, that God is protecting this murderer, this terrible sinner. God yet has his protection upon him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So he becomes a wanderer, and he goes and wanders in a wandering land. That's what Nod means. But he's east of Eden. Already they were east of Eden. That's where the entrance was, and now he's even farther. He's been booted, removed farther away from God. Things are going downhill. We see that in, in Cain's situation, Sin has affected all of his life, his livelihood, his home, his relationship with God, his, his, all of his character, his reputation. Everything has been removed. Everything has been affected. The farmer can't get his ground to produce, and so he's left. And now, finally, and worst of all, he's cut off from God. The New Testament speaks about this. As we pause here, we're going we're gonna to finish and, and see that the story gets worse before it gets better. But Paul has something to say about this exact topic. As we think about Cain and his bitterness and his wrath that he poured out on his brother and the thing that he let fester that turned into this horrific sin, well, Paul speaks about it in Ephesians chapter 4. And he talks about those who have been forgiven in Christ, those who have been restored into a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done. Those who have the protection of God, though they are such sinners, how should they behave? Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Don't let that fester. Don't let that remain. Identify it. Get rid of it. Put it away. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the path Cain should have chosen and didn't. Instead, he let it fester and he let it uh, lead to murder, the very first murder. And Paul recognizes that you and I can have that same bitterness inside our hearts. 
if we just let it fester, if we just kind of ignore it for a while and someone says something rude, someone says something mean, and we just kind of let that fester and, and, and don't want don't to deal with it, after a while it can really fester and cause an eruption. And it doesn't always lead to murder like it did with Cain, yet it leads to broken relationships, leads to broken fellowship. It leads to Christians, those who have been forgiven in Christ, being unforgiving towards one another, belying their very faith. And so Paul says, let that all go. Be kind to one another, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. But let's press on. We see that uh, sin affects um, uh, broadly. It affects all of society, really. And we see that, thirdly, sin affects the future. So we see now the, Cain's future. What's going to happen after him, right? Cain knew his wife, verse 17, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So Cain goes off, builds a city. He's a wanderer, and then he eventually builds a city, has a son, names the city after his son. And Enoch, uh, to Enoch, was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered uh, Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Right? So we're having a quick fast forward of what his life is like. What, what's going to happen after Cain? Well, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what it's going to be like. A, a line of people, a, a dynasty, as it were, founded by a guy who killed his brother over worship. What, what's it going to be like? Well, Lamech takes two wives. So we see right off the bat him breaking the, the tradition that God had established of what a true marriage is, one man, one woman, Adam, Eve. And he comes on the scene. He takes two wives. The name of the one was, was Adah, and the name of the other was, was Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play their lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal, Cain. He was the father of all, uh, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. So all the boys' names are very similar and hard to pronounce for me. So you're welcome that I got to read those for you. But he has these, these children. He has four children by these two wives. And what's interesting is these four children are all incredible. They're productive. They're, they're, they, they appear to be geniuses. They they're technologically minded, they're inventive, they're creating new things like, like how to forge weapons and stuff like that, how, musical instruments and, and things like that. And, and, uh, and so they're, they're, they're technologically advanced, they're growing, they're, they, they have a lot to offer, there's, there's advancement going on in this line. And it's amazing uh, to see that. And if you were to stop and focus right there, you would think, wow, um, Lemmick's quite a guy to raise these kinds of kids. What a... What a what a, you know, a, a legacy he's passed on to his family. We see the legacy uh, is a little darker, though. continues in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If we think about the Old Testament concept, it's called the lex talionis, uh, but it's the, it's the concept that we read about in the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that gets bad press a lot of times because people tend to think it means, hey, if someone knocks your tooth out, you get to knock his tooth out. It's going to be great. 
Someone punches you, you get to punch him. But that's, that's not the tone of it at all. The tone of it is exactly the opposite. If someone knocks a tooth out, you can do no worse to him than knock a tooth out. You might want to knock all of his teeth out. You might want to kill the guy, but you don't. You can do no more than knock a tooth out. If you take an injury and, and he breaks your arm, you, you might want to kill that guy. You might want to get, get a gang of buddies together and go thump that guy and put him in the hospital. You might want to kill him, but you can do no more. Justice says you can do no more than the harm he did to you. So it's actually the idea of lex talionis is limiting retribution, revenge, right? You do one thing to me, I'm going I'm to do worse, and I'm going to do more to you, and I'll show you, teach you to mess with me. But the lex talionis says, no, no, there's controls. Yeah, there should be justice. And when someone steals an amount from you, he should pay that amount. There's justice. But look back at, at Lamech's words to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Now, if someone wounds you, do you have the right to kill him? No. If someone strikes you, do you have a right to kill him? No, you don't. And so you see in Lamech right here, you see that there's been a further degeneration of sin, even from his dad. Because his dad uh, killed a man, his brother, and that was terrible and awful. But here we see Lamech boasting about it. Yeah, I'll kill him. And if you come and do something to me, I'll kill you. And he's boastful. He's, he's creating here a, a culture of death, really. We've already had an attack on marriage and the fact that he married two women, but now we have the rise of a culture of death that we have a man who's boasting about being vengeful. And he goes further. He says, I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Reflecting back on God's, God's protection and provision for Cain, to, to warn people off from attacking him because, because God would, would, would render justice very severely in that context. And here you have Lamech, generations later, and he's saying, you thought it was bad with Grandpa Cain. It's going to be ten times worse for anyone who messes with me. You hear the vengeance? You hear the evil? You hear the boasting in that? You hear how he's following right after the line of Cain. He's doing very similar things, but it's gotten worse. It's become a value for him. So we see that sin affects not only uh, all of life, but sin affects the future. The impact that it's having on future generations, this is just the further development of Cain play, being played out in Lamech. It's a dark, dark story. What do we learn here? Well, first of all, we must be wary of sin, seeing that it has far-reaching impact. Cain wasn't thinking about five generations after him and what was going to happen. He wasn't thinking about what kind of line he was establishing, what kind of consequences there would be. But we need to be wary of sin because it's crouching at our door. And, and give it a little, and it'll take a lot. And so we need to be wary of sin from looking at this passage and... and uh, and I think this, there's an application here for fathers. I don't, I don't tend to 
a desire to be too hard on fathers, being one and knowing it's difficult in my own failure and whatnot, but fathers, how and what we worship and what we lead our families to worship has impact on the whole family for generations to come. We have that kind of impact, and we need to be aware of that. Not scared of it, but we need to be aware that we have such an impact. Probably Cain didn't have that thought when he was taking the rock to his brother or however he killed him, but yet we see the consequences right here. We can see the consequences in society. We can see it all around us. But second, I want to make an observation. This is the line. This is the seed of the serpent. Remember back in in 315, there was going to be a, a struggle. There was going to be an ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, ultimately, that's going to culminate in the final uh, battle that, you, that we're going to see between Jesus and, and all the forces of darkness, particularly the devil. But we see that the, 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 the seed is also of generations. It's also, also types of people. We see the establishment right here of the line of the serpent in Cain and his family. We see what, a, what, what the line looks like with sin entering in and doing all these things. And this is, by the way, this isn't my idea. Uh, John agrees with this in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12. We read, Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. You see, there's a, a righteous and an unrighteous line, as it were. And Cain's is the unrighteous one. Cain is following the serpent. And the descendants of Cain are like him, only worse. The serpent that brought death to the first couple has given birth, as it were, to others like himself. So Cain brings death to his brother, and now Lamech glories in the death that he brings. You see it getting worse. You see there's a, there's a line of the serpent developing. They show it in their character. This is, this is uh, a theme that we're going to see, a pattern we're going to see continuing on through the rest of Genesis. In fact, if we read the fuller context of what John says in 1 John 3, we can see it very clearly. You can see this idea of two uh, peoples, as it were, an evil and a righteous. In John's thinking, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. What does that mean? He's a descendant of the evil one, as it were, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that you have passed out of death into life because we have loved others. Whoever does not love abides in death. You see, there's, there's a, a choice before us. Which line we're going to follow? Who, who are we going to imitate? Who are we going to be like? Who are we going to pursue? And you see the rest of Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament develops these kinds of themes. And it's not, lest we, lest we are mistaken or lest we confuse in thinking, it's specifically and only by family lines. That's, that's not it at all. It's a picture that you've got those who follow the serpent and you've got those who follow the seed of the woman. And we're going to see that develop through the rest of our time. And I want to draw our time to a close. I know it's been a, a dark message. It's a dark passage. It's the spread of sin. It doesn't have a lot of high points, but it ends on an incredible high point, and that is 
Sin can't stop the seed. Verse 25 and 26, Adam knew his wife again. So after all that terrible uh, story about Cain killing his brother and then all the offspring, we have the genealogy there of Cain. Then it flashes back to Adam. Verse 25, knew his wife again as she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. Adam and Eve had been promised that a child, a seed, would come and destroy their mortal enemy. And when Cain was born, surely they thought, this is him. He said, we'd have an offspring, this is an offspring, surely this will be him. But then when Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's was not, we get the sense that maybe it's Abel who's the promised deliverer. Maybe Abel is that seed that we should expect, that offspring who will bring deliverance. But then when the evil son Cain kills Abel, it becomes clear that Abel wasn't that promised son. He's dead. And so we read that Adam knew his wife again, bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel, for Cain has killed him. That word offspring is the same word offspring from 315. The offspring of the woman. So you have what seems to be a conscious recognition here. Maybe this is the one. But it turns out the greatest thing that we see Seth do is his father a son named Enosh. And we read in verse 26, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. He is the seed. He's not the individual seed who's going to ultimately crush the head of the serpent. But you've got the right family line. You've got the seed heading that direction. You've got it being developed in our plot here. Seth and Enosh are not the promised ones themselves, but it will be through their line that he will come. And so we have a point of encouragement here in a very dark chapter of Genesis chapter 4. And the the, the point of encouragement is that despite the proliferation of evil in the world, God's promise of a deliverer remains. Things have gotten dark, and that's not the end of the story. There will be hope. And the line, in the line of Seth, we see a man named Noah who will rescue his people from worldwide disaster and who will receive a promise from God that the natural order will be preserved despite the sin of man. And from Noah's line, we come... Uh, upon a man named Abraham who will receive a further promise from God that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. The line continues. We're awaiting the promised one. And from Abraham's line will come the fulfillment of those promises and more. When Jesus finally walks before God obediently where Adam had been disobedient and where he dies sacrificially to bear the punishment for the sins of his people, And in Jesus, will the serpent's head ultimately be crushed. And in him is the promise made all the way back in the garden, finally fulfilled. Sin can't stop the seed. And so a dark chapter has led us to a place where there's a a, a moment of brightness. Despite all of the darkness, despite the spread of sin, and by the way, it's not gotten any better, and it's not going to get better. You're going to see it get darker and darker for for a a bit longer. Chapter 5 is a very dark one. But we see that hope, that that flash, that you see everything getting darker, but yet the seed is coming. The promise that God has made that He will send one to overcome the enemy, that He will send one to overcome sin, 
to redeem His people. That promise remains. And though the line is, is, is weak and it seems to be under attack from the opposition, yet it will remain. And we have hope of that seed right now. And so, our failure to worship God with the appropriate attitudes and faith and our frequent failure to be wary of sin and to rule over sin should cause us to be all the more grateful for Jesus, who is the seed of the woman who has defeated our enemy. Because I see myself in chapter 4, and not often in flattering ways. And I would, I would be sunk, and I would be in despair if it weren't for that ending right there, if it weren't for what that ending points toward, Jesus himself and what he has overcome, that he has overcome my sin. That's where the hope is. And that's the hope I want us to go away with. I know, I know it's, it, there, there's, there's weight there, and there is light there. Cling to that light. When we look at our lives, we can't really predict the impact that our choices will have on those around us. Inappropriate worship can have consequences on present relationships and even future generations. Failure to maintain a proper regard for God can poison our expectations and our experiences. And allowing crouching sin to pounce and gain mastery over us will lead to further sin and worse sin. We recognize these things. This passage serves as a warning that the serpent still strikes heels with deadly results. But this passage also serves as an important reminder for us that the spread of sin can't stop the seed of promise. When we look at the world, when we read the news, when we watch our bank accounts, when we when we, uh, look, you know, we buy a tank of gas, if you can afford to buy such a crazy amount of gas, you think, it's dark. Everything's dark. When you see the sin in your own life, you think everything's dark. When you see the sin of those around you, you think everything's dark. The spread of sin can't stop the seed of promise. Praise God for that. So take heart. I want to take heart, and I want us to take heart from this passage. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion on the day of Christ Jesus. There are dark times and there are dark things, and we see them sometimes in ourselves, but even when we see those, we know that there is a Redeemer who has paid that penalty for my sin. There is a Redeemer who has obeyed where I have not, Born God's wrath so I don't have to. And that by faith in Him, I still see evidences of fallenness. I still see evidences that I'm a little bit like Cain. And yet there is hope because He who began a good work, He who redeemed me, will complete it, will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And so there is hope. And so when you look around, don't, don't, don't ignore the darkness that you see. Recognize it for what it is. And then recognize the light that shines even brighter than that in Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, this has been a a difficult passage because we just see uh, sin devolving. We see humanity devolving and and we recognize that it didn't stop at the end of chapter 4 and it doesn't stop in chapter 5 and it hasn't stopped in our lives. And we would be overwhelmed if we didn't read those last couple of verses. We would be overwhelmed if we didn't look to Christ who is the bright and shining one. 
who gives victory where there was loss, who gives life where there was death, who gives righteousness where there, where there was unrighteousness, where there was sin, where there was guilt. Father, I observe darkness still. But this morning, we as a congregation want to lift our eyes to Jesus, the promised seed of the woman who has won the victory for us, and recognizing that there is no power in the world that can stand against Him. There is nothing that could defeat Him. There is no sin. There is no evil in this world that could overcome what Christ has accomplished and is accomplishing. And so even in the face of the darkness, we look to Jesus and we find hope and we find comfort and we find joy and we find peace with you and we find rest. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We are so grateful that you have kept your promise even to sinners like us that you have placed your protection on us, though we share a lot in common with Cain. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I pray that we would go forth with His name on our lips, with His glory in our hearts, with His frame in our eyes. We praise you for Jesus, your Son, and it's in His name that we pray. Amen.